Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. For the best experience, listen with headphones. George, basically what we're dealing with here is, I'll give you the bottom line. Okay. I'm not trying sen- to sell a, I want to hear your thesis. I'm your not trying to sell point. a book. I'm not trying to promote a lecture. This is based on what I've come across after intense uh, research in the last year. And I have found out that the government has retrieved between 10 and 15 actual flying saucers, three of which have been in perfect condition, one of which they tried to fly. They have between 30 and 50 alien bodies uh, in cryogenic storage. Uh, We even have the name of the uh, person whose job it is to show these bodies uh, to uh, the heads of state and the people who are authorized to see them. They represent at least five different civilizations. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 12, Priests at the Ziggurat. What do you see when you look at the UFO world? Do you see scientists and researchers who are scoffed at by their colleagues while they work to uncover the great mystery of our times? A professional wrestling-style artificial drama created by people playing roles in what is essentially an entertainment industry? Or something more like a religion or spiritual movement guided by a select group determining its followers' beliefs? The answer is probably that there are elements of all three of these visions— But when I look, what I mostly see is something that resembles a religion. Stories of UFO sightings and especially UFO contact, people who claim contact or some sort of connection with extraterrestrial or ultra-terrestrial or interdimensional beings, I think it has gone under-recognized as an element of American or maybe Western spirituality. Host of the Saucer Life podcast, Aaron Gullius. These are stories that are things that in another time and place might have been considered divine encounters of some kind. And so can there be some kind of way to integrate some of these stories into our conception of human experiences with the divine, with the supernatural, going all the way back as far as we have records of those things. At the same time, thinking about it like that might downplay the role that the popular culture and the historical context play in how these stories develop and what details are there. In this season's final episode, I want to look at a theme that has come up again and again in conversations that I've had in the course of making three seasons of Strange Arrivals. Belief in UFOs and other paranormal phenomena can occupy the same place in people's lives as religion, and this can affect how they view UFOs. We've heard about Robert Bigelow several times during this season. He is a billionaire, the owner of Bigelow Aerospace and Budget Suites of America. He once owned Skinwalker Ranch lobbied Senator Harry Reid to fund a Pentagon program to investigate the paranormal, 
and reportedly retrofitted storage units in Las Vegas to house debris from crashed alien craft. These are just a few of the things that he initiated or funded. In June of 2020, he founded the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies, an organization that sponsored a competition offering a cash prize for the best evidence of the survival of consciousness after death. Bigelow founded this institute just four months after the death of his wife of 55 years, Diane. His interest in an afterlife, which his wife shared, predated Diane's death. In 1992, their son committed suicide at the age of 24, a devastating event. In a January 21st, 2021 New York Times article, Ralph Blumenthal, who we heard from earlier this season as John Mack's biographer, wrote, Seeking comfort after their son's death, the Bigelows held sittings with the renowned medium George Anderson. Did their son make contact? Not really, Mr. Bigelow said, but what I got out of the readings, I think, was that his spirit existed and that he was okay. In 1997, he established the Bigelow Chair of Consciousness Studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, but shut it down after a few years when it didn't make much progress. He then turned his attention to studying UFOs. A lot of what drives Robert Bigelow's interest in the paranormal was the death of his son, which is a tragedy, but you know that type of loss will definitely push people to reach out to try and grab onto something greater in hopes that someone you love isn't truly lost. Journalist and host of the Alien State podcast, MJ Benias. They're out there somewhere. They're still around. For sure, that's going to drive people. I know it would drive me. I mean, I've got kids. I know if something like that happened to me, I would definitely reach out to anything to try and hold on. So we know that there's this kind of moments in people's lives whether it's through work or whether it's through research or whether it's through personal loss, as tragic as it is, that is going to propel them to find faith in something larger than themselves. And I think the UFO topic, I think the paranormal topic in general is that. I think it's just our natural tendency as a species to latch on to that which is bigger than us, that we hope is there. Clearly, the desire for the existence of a greater power, be it divine or paranormal, can lead people down many paths, with religion being by far the most common. But it is not the only path. What kind of magical thinking do we do reflexively on a daily basis? It might not be as extreme as having a big, perfectly articulated argument why dinosaurs had to be on Noah's Ark and they were vegetarians and whatnot. But we, we might do it, you know, nonetheless in smaller, trickier ways. And there's a uh, universal kind of touching vulnerability to that. My name is Sarah Krasestein, and I am a writer. And you'll find that I have a very strange hybrid accent because I am a dual American-Australian citizen, and I've spent probably about half my life in each country by this point. I spoke with Sarah about her book, The Believer, which takes a look at the lives, experiences, and beliefs of people from six different walks of life. Death doula, ghost hunter, evangelical Christian at the Creation Museum, Mennonite, a woman incarcerated for killing her abusive husband, and UFO believer. 
I was hearing the same phrases again and again. And what the believer is, is six braided together, very different stories that on the surface have nothing in common. And I was hearing this phrase again from all these people, whether they were the ghost hunters or the ufologists or fundamentalist Christians or Buddhists, that this life can't be all there is. There has to be something else out there. And whether they came at that from a, you know, kingdom come evangelist perspective or a Buddhist non-attachment perspective or a personal kind of agency perspective or literal alien perspective, it was this longing for something more, for some meaning, for something greater than we appeared to be able to produce for ourselves in this kind of quotidian daily life. It's something that, you know, again, kind of I see across all these stories, or I saw across the stories, whether it was the paranormal researchers, the ghost hunters at work, or uh, some of the ufologists, the kind of inability, which is a very human universal inability, we all do it in different ways, to have difficulty tolerating uncertainty and therefore our own intractable lack of control over daily circumstances. Sarah sees a range of beliefs and interests addressing the human need to perceive something greater than ourselves. Again, for the vast, vast majority of people, this is found in religion. Religion runs on faith. You don't require scientific proof to believe. But that's not the case in the worlds of UFO and paranormal belief. The people in these worlds value proof. Robert Bigelow, for instance, has used his considerable fortune to study the phenomena he is interested in. It's not enough to believe or have faith. He wants scientific proof. Any number of cable television shows center on finding evidence. Evidence of aliens who have visited Earth in the distant past. Evidence of more recent, famous encounters, such as Roswell or Rendlesham Forest. More current evidence of UFOs taken by cell phones or cameras mounted on military jets. Or evidence that the government is hiding the truth from us. Abduction researcher Bud Hopkins claimed that experiencers from around the globe were left with similar scoop-shaped scars and even tiny implanted devices. The problem is that none of this evidence has stood up to scientific scrutiny as proof. I think that one of the reasons why people are getting into UFOs as opposed to, say, other religions is because in modern times, you know, we consider ourselves these kind of rational, scientific-minded people. And UFOs can kind of take the place of a religion, but we can see it being real. My name is Jeff Knox. I'm a UFO researcher. I tend to focus on the history of the topic. I also do a lot of work on archival stuff and digital preservation, scanning documents, files, and preserving them for the next generation of researchers. Jeff speculates that UFOs offer a plausible alternative to religion because our current technology and scientific knowledge make further advances such as travel to other solar systems seem attainable by us or someone else. We can hypothesize interstellar travel. We can hypothesize us visiting other planets. And we can think, well, maybe aliens are doing the same. They're visiting us. And so UFOs is something that kind of fits within our scientific worldview as something that's at least very plausible. About some people who become involved in the UFO topic, Jeff says, 
UFOs will act as kind of that belief system for them. And it seems more plausible than, you know, fairies or angels or demons because life in the universe, extraterrestrial life, is almost probably a certainty out there somewhere. Another aspect of this dynamic of UFOs as belief system is that skeptical pushback against UFO claims can be seen as an attack against a person's core beliefs. It's understandably threatening, and the response from believers can seem excessive. One person who is often on the end of these responses is UFO researcher Mick West. It's an interesting thing, the blowback, because the people in the UFO community, a lot of them are very passionate, and some of them are super passionate, and it's, it's almost like a religion. But in some ways, it's more than a religion, because for the individual person in ufology, they're often basing their belief on personal experience. So it's like, you know, if your religion was based upon God speaking to you directly, it would be that personal. And for someone who's seen a UFO, or even in some cases feels like they were had contact with an alien or even were abducted by aliens, is a deeply personal thing. And so when someone comes along and they're saying, well, that's probably just a bird, they take it very much as a personal attack. And so they get very defensive. So I've kind of learned that over the years that you have to be uh, understanding of people's uh, beliefs if you're going to communicate effectively with them. So here's the thing. If you are a UFO believer, what kind of proof do you need? What is adequate to confirm to yourself that this is, in some sense, real? Because there is no hard evidence right now that is going to make the scientific case. Or if there is, it's not public. MJ Benias. Whatever the phenomenon is, it's by definition kind of unknowable. You can observe UFOs for 5,000 years, and you will probably never get enough observational data to say, okay, we can now make a scientific conclusion here. You can't just bring one into a lab. It's never really going to happen unless literally something crashes and we're able to like recover it and haul it into a lab and study it or something. We have a lot of stories about that type of event occurring, but there's no actual like evidence or data to back it up apart from just anecdote. Unfortunately, that's kind of where we're stuck. But is scientific certainty necessary for belief in UFOs? When I interviewed Diana Pasolka, who is a professor of philosophy and religion at University of North Carolina, Wilmington, I asked her a question about how proof of alien visitors would be accepted by religious and non-religious people. People in religion, practitioners of religion, already believe in things that are non-human intelligences. They already have this category. They've lived with it their whole lives, right? They go to synagogue, they go to temple, you know, they go to wherever, you know, church. And there they talk about unseen realities, spiritual realities, things like that. Atheists want hardcore evidence. They want like a flying saucer to land on the White House lawn. But that kind of thing, I'm not sure they're gonna get that. They're gonna get some stuff, some, you know, realities like radar signatures and things like that. They're gonna get that. They're also gonna get a lot of reliable, credible witnesses who've seen things as well. So her answer seems to be that belief will have to be based on indications not proof. 
signs like radar signatures and stories. The types of things, signs and stories, that underpin religions. And maybe that's all that many people need, something that supports their faith in the existence of UFOs, even if it falls short of actual proof. But for others, myself included, something more is needed, something that would hold up under scientific scrutiny or in a court of law. MJ Benias. For me to believe, I need to actually see it. I need to actually research it. I actually need to speak to the people who are there. I need to see more data in order for me to actually believe in it. And I think that's a lot of people. And I think that's why the UFO topic remains in this category of permanent observation and anecdote and never getting anywhere further. If this sounds like things are at an impasse, they aren't. Because there is no lack of interpretation and conjecture about the types of information that Diana mentioned. And there is also the promise of more information to come. After the break. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. Over the course of three seasons of Strange Arrivals, we've examined a host of leading figures in the UFO world. One who we haven't, though his name has come up a few times, is Jacques Vallée. Vallée has had a wide-ranging career, including as an astronomer, computer scientist, and venture capitalist. But he is best known for his UFO research and theorizing. He is the inspiration for the character Claude Lacombe, played by Francois Truffaut in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Monsieur Neri, please, one more question. N'avez-vous pas fait récemment une rencontre? Have you recently had a close encounter? We heard John Keel complain that Vallée was taking his ideas earlier in this season. Vallée is a critic of the extraterrestrial hypothesis and speculates that the phenomenon might be extra-dimensional and responsible for some religious events, such as the Fatima visions, a supposed apparition of the Virgin Mary who imparted prophecies to three farm children in Portugal in 1917. Mick West. I think this is something you see in UFO researchers, is that they're not really objective, and that they, a lot of people are interested in UFO research because they're trying to validate something. They're trying to validate a particular belief that they already hold. And so they're not really trying to figure out what happened in certain cases. They're trying to use certain cases to bolster their argument. And it seems you know, fairly obvious that's what's happening, even if perhaps they don't realize it themselves. Jacques Vallée has a tendency to believe everything that the witnesses say. So they spin some complicated story about you know, being visited by aliens or something happening or white powder being sprayed on their house or something like that. And he believes that it, it all happened exactly as they described it. And then he tries to fit that into some kind of framework. And the only way you can really do it is, is kind of go really far out there. You know, it's not just simply people seeing lights in the sky that they can't explain, which might be alien spaceships. I mean, that's almost fairly straightforward. How do you explain these actual encounters 
that people supposedly have. And you know, he comes up with explanations about essentially tricksters from other dimensions who are coming in and perhaps even altering reality on an individual scale. They're really just not based on evidence. They're just a way of trying to fit the stories into reality. And the stories really don't comport with reality. And so the simpler explanation is just that the stories are not accurate. But if your default position is to believe this story is 100% accurate, then you've got to jump through so many hoops to try to make it actually fit in the world. We saw this dynamic with John Keel's theories about the superspectrum and ultra-terrestrials. The point is that people like Valet and Keel and Mack and Hynek have served as interpreters of UFO information throughout the years. And now, following the 2017 New York Times article describing the Pentagon's UFO program, there is a new generation. And a characteristic of this generation is that they claim to be privy to knowledge that the rest of us are not. I happen to be privileged enough to have uh, be in on the fact that we have been visited on this planet. Um, with absolute certainty that four species, four different species, at least, had been visiting this planet for thousands of years. And the original stuff that ATIP did was FOIA exempt. And people go, how do you know that? I go, because I stood there with the memo in my hand that said these are, it, it literally, I watched the DOD memo that said it and it was signed. Is that it is my uh, belief that the United States is in possession of, uh, of exotic material. And unfortunately, that's, that's, that's about all I can, I can say at this time. Again, MJ Benias. Ancient history was what I used to teach. And the ancient Babylonians had these massive temples and, and they would believe that at the very top of the temple, the priests could go in there and commune with the gods. They could talk to the gods and the gods would respond but only the priests could do it. If a person like you or me walked up the ziggurat and walked into this temple, nothing would happen. But if a priest did it, they would see God and they would communicate. It's kind of a very similar situation. We're kind of trusting people within the know, trusting people who claim to have evidence of UFOs or evidence of aliens or whatever. We're trusting them to be the ones to communicate with the gods for us. But if we try, well, we're not we're not on the inside. We're not part of that community. We're never going to get access to that. So it kind of exists in this kind of anecdotal world, much like the priests of ancient days would communicate with gods and then come back down and say, like, listen, God says this. You have to listen to me because I'm a priest. I think it's kind of a similar mindset. You have this kind of religious system operating within ufology, within the paranormal community, within 19th century spiritualism of these kind of priestly class that functions at this high level that has access to allegedly all the evidence from the anecdotes and then the rest of us who will never see that ever in our lives. A theme in the world of ufology that goes back decades is the belief that the government knows much more about UFOs than it is letting on. The idea that the government will at some point reveal publicly what they know is called disclosure with a capital D. We talked about this a little bit in the previous episode. The 2017 New York Times article kicked off renewed anticipation that disclosure was imminent, if it wasn't already underway. And this heightened excitement about disclosure sets a dynamic that can be seen in religious movements. In 1822, 
a wealthy Baptist named William Miller determined that the second coming of Jesus Christ would occur in 1843 or 1844. In 1831, he made this prediction public, and over the next decade, the movement grew. He eventually set several time periods or actual dates when the second coming would occur, and each would see a building of excitement and then pass without event. But his followers remained until a final date of October 22nd, 1844, was put forward and then passed. This was referred to as the Great Disappointment, capital G, capital D. But some followers remained in daily anticipation of Christ's return. More recently, in 1993, the 90-year-old Menachem Mendel Schneerson suffered a stroke while praying at the grave of his father, leaving him unable to speak. Schneerson was a rabbi in the Lubavitcher sect of Orthodox Judaism based in the Crown Heights section of New York City. He was known as the Rebbe, a title given to the spiritual leader of the sect. There was a wide belief in the Lubavitcher community that Schneerson was likely the Masayak or Messiah. After his stroke, the community was consumed with the expectation that at any minute, he would be revealed as the Messiah. This is from the January 3rd, 1993 edition of the New York Times about so-called Messiah beepers. In the pre-cell phone days, beepers or pagers were a way to get a message to someone who wasn't by their landline phone. The Messiah beeper was to alert people that the Messiah was revealed. They need the beepers so they know immediately when the Messiah has arrived. There's an expectation that at any moment there will be a revelation, said Haim Halberstam, the audiovisual expert who oversees Messiah beeper sales. People are very tense waiting. Could happen any second, said Shifra Hendry. This kind of anticipation is very powerful. It galvanizes believers. And disclosure acts in a similar way. The truth is going to be revealed soon, or the revealing of the truth has already begun. The two congressionally mandated Pentagon UFO reports over the past two years were the subject of great expectations from the UFO community, thinking that this would be the moment that the government's secrets were revealed. Both reports were duds, revealing little, and forcing believers to sift through the verbiage for clues. But an odd thing happens when these events fail to come off. Many followers don't lose faith. Often, in fact, they become even more convinced. William Miller's followers stayed with him through several prophecy dates that ended in disappointment. The same happens in the UFO community. What ends up happening is the prophesied disclosure or the prophesied landing of the ships never happens. And so it dies down for a bit and then it repeats all over again in cycles or people come up with new justifications as to why the disclosure hasn't happened yet or as to why in some of those religions the ships haven't landed yet to help us all out. They come up with excuses and justifications as to why the prophecy never occurred. They push it. And this is basically, again, the same thing you see with disclosure. They come up with reasons why it doesn't occur, and then they push the data out further. 
This way you kind of never reach an endpoint and you can keep the cycle going perpetually. And unfortunately, a lot of people in the UFO world, while they may not be in an actual UFO religion, they treat the topic like a religion. It becomes their belief system and they approach it in the exact same way. I want to come back to something we looked at in episode 10, John Keel's ideas about the superspectrum and ultra-terrestrials. In his book, The Eighth Tower, he lays out his theory that there is a whole reality that inhabits the same space that we do, but which we cannot detect because it exists at frequencies beyond our ability to sense. Occasionally, his theory goes, a being from the superspectrum is pulled into our reality. In our reality, it doesn't have a form until it is experienced by someone, at which point it adopts the form that matches the experiencer's expectations. That is, it appears to be what the observer expects of a paranormal being. Expect a ghost, and the ultra-terrestrial is a ghost. Expect an alien, and you get an alien. The idea is that there is an external thing that exists, but doesn't really have a form until it is given one by our own subconscious. It is created both outside of and within us. Does this make sense? Maybe not literally, but that's not how Keel claims he meant it. Researcher and folklore professor David Clark. I thought he was convinced that these ultra-terrestrials were real. And the big sort of thing, the blow, as it was at the time when I met him and we had this long discussion, was he just told me that he'd invented the whole thing. You know, it was a literary device. And it seems to me to be a great literary device. Because people have always told stories about the magical or the paranormal. These stories have been told through centuries and across cultures. Jacques Vallée would say, that these stories are told about something real and strange that we don't understand. I think telling these stories is part of the human condition. It's a way of trying to understand the world we find ourselves in. The other part of this is that these stories reflect the times. UFOs appear in the late 1940s when our own craft were becoming increasingly common sights in the skies. Before that, it was airships that reflected our use of hot air balloons, and before that, when we had no access to the skies, it was divine beings such as angels. And this makes these stories different from religious stories, which stay rooted in the era they were created. There is no serious reimagining of Old Testament figures in the modern world. They will always be of their time. Throughout this season, we've looked at the effect that researchers have on UFO accounts. I think about Keel's literary device and how our expectations determine what form the paranormal takes. I think these expectations largely come from a handful of prominent UFO researchers. Did Bud Hopkins, David Jacobs, and John Mack stumble upon a vast conspiracy of alien abduction? Or did their accounts of it cause some people to interpret their own experiences, whatever they were, real or imagined, as abductions? 
Did Jacobs and Mack happen to only interview people whose abduction experiences fit with their theories? Or did the researchers they talked with determine how their subjects recalled abduction experiences? I'm sometimes asked how researching three seasons of this podcast has changed my thoughts about UFOs. Well, it hasn't changed my belief that there aren't actual physical craft from a different planet or different dimension flying around our skies. I just don't see the evidence. I think it's also important to acknowledge, though, that a lot of people sincerely believe that they have had experiences with UFOs or the paranormal, whether it be experiencers of alien abduction or witnesses to the appearance of strange lights or craft. And these perceived experiences often have a profound effect on those people's lives. Just because I don't believe their experiences were the result of something not of this world doesn't mean I don't honor their right to their own memories. In the end, I agree with Aaron Gullius when he says that UFO stories are underrecognized as an element of American spirituality. They are the mythology of the technology-driven post-World War II world. And like myths from other times, they tell a story about our fears and our aspirations. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Rima El Kayali, Jesse Funk, and Noemi Griffin, with executive producers Alexander Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey, and supervising producer Josh Thane. Learn more about the show at grimandmild.com slash strangearrivals, and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.